0: And welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, January 17th, we are studying 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10. to In today's text, St. Paul encourages the Corinthians to look forward to the eternal dwelling God has guaranteed to them through his Spirit, as they live right now by faith and not by sight. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Rev. Dr. Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz serves as pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, it is great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So Pastor Kuntz, I want to talk to you about 2 Corinthians from the outset, about a comment I heard you make recently in a different context that we might do well to consider 2 Corinthians as one of the pastoral epistles. So normally that would be 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. What about 2 Corinthians makes it a a pastoral epistle, in your opinion? Or what's helpful about that consideration?
1: Yeah, what's really helpful about that consideration is 2 Corinthians is the endpoint in the canon of Scripture for one of the closest things to a long-term pastoral relationship— that any of the apostles has with any single christian congregation. By contrast, Romans is written to whatever christians there are in the city of Rome. Paul hadn't yet been there when he wrote that from Corinth, and so he didn't exactly know who he was talking to, but it was seemed like it was multiple congregations at that point unknown to him. With the Corinthians, he is what we would call the church planter. Um, that's a term that we get from 1 Corinthians 3. He describes it in 1 Corinthians 4 as having become their father through the gospel, that is, he's the first man to preach the gospel to them, and that the gospel then brings this congregation into being. 2 Corinthians follows up on the clear instructions and stuff like that in 1 Corinthians with something that pastorally is extremely beneficial and is really the side of the pastoral ministry that I think most pastors have most difficulty with clear instructions about what to do and how to go about it and how to relate to people in different stations of life or orders of creation in First Timothy and Titus. Second Timothy comes close to Second Corinthians in the display of emotion and the sense of what you do, especially with all the adverse and even sometimes horrible things that happen to you in the course of the ministry. So Second Corinthians is a place, I think especially to process, affliction and emotion especially negative emotion about people you love who don't seem to love you in return and for that reason you know i don't this doesn't need to become like you know let's let's move the books around in scripture so they all line up together or something but it's hard for me not to think of second corinthians as the personal side of the pastoral ministry very much on display in the way that the less personal or the more objective or outward side of the pastoral ministry is under discussion in 1 Timothy or Titus, especially.
0: Sure. So, and then with 2 Timothy, with that being a more personal, emotional letter that Paul writes to Timothy, the the pastor who comes after him, the pastor he's trained, then 2 Corinthians kind of falls in that same sort of mold, but
1: toward the congregation that he spent a lot of time with. That's right. Yeah with with second timothy you're looking at how do i think about you know a, a another christian whom i love when i am potentially gone and it, and it shares that with the other captivity letters second corinthians isn't about potentially being gone forever but it's about the the gap between the divine reality of what you are doing and what is happening and on the other hand what exactly is worthwhile about it, or or perceived or understood about it now. And there's always going to be a gap between eternal divine realities, even ongoing in the midst of the Christians through the preaching of the gospel, versus the congregation's grasp of the awesomeness of those things. And in today's passage, we see something like that gap under discussion as well. And that's not an accident, because I think we're smack dab in the middle of these, you know, weighty things. And Paul uses that idea of weight to talk about, well, what, what is it going to be like when all of the nonsense that we get caught up in right now goes away and then only the realities and the things of Christ come in, in their fullness. That's, that's the eternal weight of glory and the weight of glory is what the pastor is bringing to bear even when and where he's under affliction he's suffering you know kind of second corinthians 1 and 2 type of stuff and even where the congregation isn't necessarily recognizing what it the i would say the majesty and the wonder of what is happening as the gospel is being preached even by a lowly man with a thorn in his flesh
0: hmm. so talk a little bit more about how the what we read in this letter then helps the pastor to relate to his congregation maybe as as he suffers in their midst and how that also then helps the yeah. congregation to relate to him and the ministry that he brings
1: yeah I mean for the pastor's part it's like you know you need you need to wake up every day and realize that you have the work of angels right and the the pastors of the church is actually called angels in revelation right? Um, you, you have angels work, you get to proclaim the Christmas gospel. You proclaim the Easter gospel. You proclaim the living Christ every day that, that is so amazing and prepares people for eternity, even brings them eternity now so that he who lives and believes in me, even though he die, yet, shall he live? He's already living yet. Shall he live even through death? You have to recall that because if you just sink down into the merely human horizontal realities of the ministry you know, this guy didn't return my call, or I have difficulty with this, or, you know, it's going to be a rough voters meeting or something, you know, you can get sunk into the mire of what you're doing very, very, very easily. And some description of that is actually in Second Corinthians, you know, like perplexed,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. So
1: I love the honesty of Second Corinthians, not only about the emotional realities of the ministry, but about what the ministry is actually doing and how heavenly it is in that way, however gritty certain realities day-to-day may be. For the congregation's part, it's also the way to think of your pastor. So in the same way that with your parents, you could always focus on, my parents do this weird thing, you know, they do this weird thing uh, before Thanksgiving dinner every year and I don't like it, you know, or Or they always, you know, they always have to start the car way too early when it's cold outside or something, you know, like, why do they do that? That's a waste of, you can focus on nitty gritty things you don't like about people. When you think about the pastor, just like when you think about your parents, you got to realize God put this person in your life to bless you. And when you're holding him accountable, you don't need to hold him accountable for every human failing that he has. The Lord himself knows how many failings that man has. The Lord knows him better than you do and better than that man knows. You wanna hold him in high regard, and this goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians 4, hmm. that a man should regard the pastor as a steward of Christ and a steward of the a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. So he needs to bring you heavenly things. You don't need to be dissatisfied with him because he's a fan of the wrong college football team. You need to be dissatisfied with him where he is not bringing you the fullness of the scriptures out of what you just heard read in church. That's, that's something to ask of him because you say, I, you have angels work to do, bring me the stuff that angels bring, bring me the heavenly stuff, bring me the gospel. That's what you want out of him. And second Corinthians can train you not only to see what it is that he goes through since the apostles so vivid in his descriptions but also to see what is the purpose of what this man is doing? What is the purpose of the ministry? What is it for? Well, it's announcing to you these heavenly realities, which are now here. And when Christ comes again in glory, they will become readily apparent all in all in a way that right now they're hidden under suffering and hidden under affliction. You've already made reference to a couple
0: texts from first Corinthians, as well as second Corinthians. What, what parts do we need to particularly know as we look at this section from chapter five? Well, you got to know all of it, but, there you um, go. <laughs> but I would, so I would say like especially a
1: Prof. yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> I would say just memorize the whole thing in Greek okay. and then you're good. Um, Fantastic. I would say from first Corinthians, especially the first four chapters, because if you remember back to the first letter, the issue in the Corinthian congregation with pastors specifically is some people like one and some people like another. And Paul's trying to say, look, this is about the message that we bring and the foundation that we're laying, which is Christ Jesus. Other than that, no man can lay any foundation. And then from Second Corinthians, you can say, oh, okay, now it's, now it's focused on Paul's experience, what's going on with Paul as he ministers that word of God to them. So then as you're running up to chapter 5, I think especially the very first chapter, because by five, Paul's not only talking about his own affliction or suffering, he's also talking about all Christians and we'll, we'll explain that, but in the first chapter of 2nd Corinthians, you can really easily see, hey, um, the affliction that we're going through is not utterly pointless and purposeless, right? It's not just like, well, it's going to be really horrible and then maybe it'll stop, you know? Um, but that is readying us for not only the giving of comfort now, because we are comforted by God, but it's also preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that understanding is what you have to bring into what it is that Paul's going to say about the nature of this life relative to the life of the world to come. Yeah.
0: Okay. And one other chapter, as I was looking at this text, it yeah. seems that First Corinthians 15 with the resurrection body is going to be pretty important when we think about tents and dwellings. Maybe. Yeah. i um, off on that.
1: Right. No. You're no. You're right. Is that First Corinthians 15 really needs to be um, set next to what we're going to look at in a second? Okay. In order to understand, not just that there is a difference in the resurrection. But what, what kind of a difference does that make? And the passage that we're using today from Second Corinthians 5, I use almost every time somebody is dying because it's so easy to grasp, what am I looking ahead to, right? They believe 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to be changed. I'm going to have a resurrection body. But it becomes more concrete when you take the back end of 2 Corinthians 4 and the front of 2 Corinthians 5, and you say, this is the kind of change we're undergoing. This is the difference that's going to be made in the resurrection.
0: All right. Very good. So with all that in mind, let's take a look at the text. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. That's our text for today. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Koontz, let's start with that opening image that Paul yeah. uses really throughout this text, the, the thought of a tent
1: or a building. What's, what's he communicating here? Okay. He is clarifying or, or expanding upon this difference that you see him bring up in 1 Corinthians 15 between the physical reality that now is, specifically here, the body, and what that is changed into that there is there is one glory and then there is a differing glory in another state okay so if i'm moving from one state to another i'm moving from a life defined by death coming at the end versus a life where i am i have passed beyond death and i will never die again right hmm. then in moving from one to the other also the reality changes so i'm moving here from a tent and a tent is both small and temporary um it's it's actually part of what paul makes uh, in the course of his missionary endeavor where sometimes he will make leather goods in order to move the gospel along faster so he doesn't have to raise support it's so it's actually it's actually something he makes and uh, that I think makes it even more interesting because <laughs> it's 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 part of Paul's just getting the wherewithal to do this ministry, whereby the whereby the person is readied to move from something small and temporary that could be easily blown over in a storm, into something that is permanent and lasting, and so you move from what is what is impermanent, what is packed up, what is carried around to something that is like the house that Jesus talks about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where all kinds of rain and wind can beat down on it. And because it's founded on the rock, it doesn't move. Hmm. So that, that comparison that was inside 1 Corinthians 15 has become a lot more explicit here in the way that Paul is now talking about the body. Even the, even the mention of a house not made with hands. Not made with hands doesn't mean like, you know, just magically burst into reality out of nowhere. It means it has an origin only in God. Um, it's like the stone not, not cut with hands that destroys all the kingdoms of the earth um, in the Old Testament. Yeah. So you're de- you're dealing with something that is going to be God's gift, this house, this lasting body, and it will it is permanent. In a way that the tent never will be, because part of the issue here, coming out of chapter four, is that Paul is at pains to stress the fact that this life, compared to eternity, is very brief and very passing. It doesn't feel that way, especially when you're under affliction, right? So if you think about the sickest you've ever been, or the way that time slows down when a loved one is dying, then you know that you're dealing with something where this is gonna last forever, or I'm gonna remember this forever, or this is how it's gonna be forever, or I'll never get to talk to her again. Not true. In Christ, that's not true. You're dealing with a reality that compared to the eternal weight of glory is brief and fleeting. Just like the tent, and what God is giving you is like the house in that it's permanent and lasting and real. And mm. once you're in it, you're gonna forget what it's like to be in a tent. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. Well, and, and, I mean, as you point out, Paul being a, a tent maker for much of his his ministry, using that to support himself. I mean, you could imagine him maybe arriving in Corinth and living in a tent for a while. And then getting to Corinth, and after they've received him as a, a church planter and a congregation's established, maybe someone welcomes him in, into their home. I mean, that's all a pious imagination on my part, but this is this is an image that that the Corinth certainly Paul's familiar with. Yeah, yeah. oh, Corinthians- totally the corinthians also might have seen even from paul in a very literal sense this move from from a tent to a house now a different sort of move from a tent to a house that he's he's describing here and as you're making the connection to the previous chapter where he yeah. talks about a light momentary affliction it does strike me then that he includes the matter of our earthly death in that light momentary affliction so that yeah, you know if it. our if this tent is destroyed well, that's a part of the light momentary affliction, and if there's anything oh, in this great. life that doesn't seem to be light or momentary, it would be death, but that's where Paul lumps it here.
1: Yeah, it's so great, and, and it, it is because he thinks about it that way that Paul demonstrates relatively little of something that is common to fallen man and increasingly on display in our world, which is without Christ— and that is the fear of death, how people are motivated by the fear of death, what they'll do because of the fear of death, the, the crazy stuff they're willing to get up to in order to avoid death, even the mention of it, the sight of it. And Paul's not afraid of death. <laughs> so, um, because he's not afraid of death, he behaves in ways that seem wild to us. And, and when people, when I've studied, you know, like acts, like I I will teach some classes in the summer and go around different places. And people are always like, wow, I can't imagine, you know, getting up in front of thousands of people and being like down with your idols, you know? And it's like, well, you know, if, if you weren't worried about death, like what would you be capable of? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Probably some kind of crazy stuff. Right. And, and that's Paul all over. So when you start to think about death. Like, well, you know, I already died with Christ in baptism. So that's as bad as it gets. Yeah. That's as bad as it gets. Then I, I do not have a fear of what is in front of me because I know it's going to be swallowed up by life, that life is going to prevail, that, that Christ will have the victory. And that, that really does kind of make, make you think differently about things. And it makes you think differently about what your priorities in life are. And I think specific to Second Corinthians, it changes Paul's relationship to time. Hmm. That if I'm afraid of death, death is like sitting out there, you know, it's like, it's like when you get, if you're playing a sport and you, and you psych yourself out because you always choke near the end of the game, it doesn't, you could be up, you know, by 17 points with 3.05 left on the clock and, um you know, you always choke and you know, you're going to choke. So then you do, you know, you choke every time, um, because it's, it's sitting out there in front of you and you're scared of it. And it's going to, it's going to come meet you. And that, and that's the way that if you think about it, death often is portrayed in stories from all kinds of cultures is that death comes and meets you or it comes for you. It wants to collect you, right? Like your debt is due now. You have to pay up. If you think about the Christian gospel, though, the message that you need to die comes to you before the day of your death, you die in Christ. You're joined with him through baptism into death, a death like his, so that you might share with him in a resurrection like his. So the death is in back of you for the Christian, the death, the death is behind you, and then the resurrection is in front of you. That's how you can understand. Paul's going to be able to say stuff like I'd rather be away and and with the Lord or I press ahead to make it my goal right talking about the resurrection in Philippians because he's all about let's go forward let's go let's go let's go cuz he's looking forward to resurrection he's not looking he's not looking at the moment of physical death is like oh no what do I do then like who it's going to be so horrible. It is horrible without Christ. I mean, look at the story of the rich fool. The death is like a complete interruption of everything the rich fool has going on. Yeah. You know. Well, but all... for a Christian, no way. Like I already died. I'm good. I'm I I already you can't do anything to me. Like I'm going to rise from the dead. So it's going to be good.
0: Yeah, well and, and so as you have that forward looking to yeah. the resurrection, which is the way we speak in the Nicene Creed that I I look forward to the life of the world to come. It's, right. it's not just I'm waiting, but I'm looking for it. That's right. So that then fills us with a boldness right now, which is a another connection to First Corinthians 15, which you know we know is the the resurrection chapter. But it ends, therefore, be immovable, be steadfast, because your labor's not in vain. Right. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but but that's where this is is headed to. We're gonna be of good courage. We're gonna aim to please the Lord. Because we have that focus looking forward to the resurrection.
1: Yeah. And if you if you don't have that, then all the stuff about be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, but you know, it just it it's all very burdensome and wearisome. The reason it's not burdensome or wearisome in the scriptures is because the scriptures are shaped by and written by and inspired by the risen Christ. And so you're not looking at a, at a future or a life of work now that is somehow defined by, you know, do your best and then, and then hope that it works out. It's defined by the reality of Christ's resurrection. If you lose that mindset, especially if you are a minister of the gospel, you know, just give all the rest of it up because it's going to be. A, a horrible burden all the time because you can never do enough. You can never, you could never do enough good. You can never do enough work of the Lord. But yeah, of course, of course, of course. It's not defined by you, it's defined by his resurrection and the fact that you are headed toward that.
0: Hmm. We talked a little bit about that at the beginning of chapter three, where Paul talks about our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but it's from God. Right. And and that actually motivates Paul to work harder, knowing that it's not about him and it's not his ability, but it's God's. So similarly with, with the resurrection, although yeah. it, it might seem counterintuitive, that actually motivates for harder work, whereas
1: if you didn't have that, as you said, you you would go the opposite direction. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you would obviously do the bare minimum because, and think about the bearable talents, Um, you would do the bare minimum because you would be convinced that You know, this, you know, the best you're going to get out of this guy is like, you know, a halfway decent Christmas party at the end of the year, you know, but he's not even going to give you a bonus. Um, whereas the reality is it's his delight to, to give and, and, and to give abundantly, right? I came that they may have life and that abundantly. If you understand that he's talking about the resurrection, right? Then all the rest of it gets added to you in this. You know, geometrically expanding fashion that the Lord always describes His gifts.
0: Mm, yeah. So this this text, looking forward to the resurrection, encourages us to be of good courage to continue to work for the Lord. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Coons this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right! LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, January 17th. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 to 10 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. He is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Quinn's prior to the break we were talking about the tent versus the building made by God not made with hands. Before we move on a little bit from that, I'm curious just with the language of tent, house, building. Yeah. When I think of those words in the context of the Old Testament, I think of like the tabernacle, the temple, the house of the Lord. And I know we're talking about I mean we've been talking about the earthly body, the resurrection body. Yes. Is there a connection to be made with that, the dwelling place of the Lord, in the way the scriptures use that language elsewhere, or is that a different thing?
1: Well, I think what you're getting here is something like what you get in First Peter chapter two, where the stones being built up, the thing that the Lord is busy building, is composed of the saints of God. And that if the body is described here as a house or a home, the resurrection body, the glorified body, the sinless body, the immortal body is described as a house or a home, that is a, that is a completion of what is already begun by faith in this life, which is that the Lord is dwelling in and with his people. And that in the life of the world to come, that dwelling is is so intimate that we would we would describe him as as the builder of each one of us right Mm -hmm. so it's this kind of you know movement between talking about the body and talking about where the lord lives talking about the body and talking about a building that you always get when you're trying to say well where is god you know or where is he going to be and the scriptural answer is that because of the resurrection of jesus he will be with us and in us, and we therefore will have lives and bodies completely free from sin, death, evil. You know, we will be yielding fruit in in every season, in that you know tropical way that the New Jerusalem is described in Revelation. So this is a common thing that the Scripture does when it's talking about God's dwelling with man, is that it moves back and forth between describing men and their bodies, right? And so the change of our body from mortal to immortal is that is that very change from tent, God dwelling temporarily like the tabernacle in the wilderness, to a house or a home, God dwelling permanently in the midst of where his people live. Mm. As Paul continues
0: then, he continues to talk about the tent, and he says, we groan in the tent. So the the time, and, and this is, you were talking about This is a text that is often read at the the time a bedside of a dying Christian. So talk about the the groaning that happens in this tent.
1: That groaning is something that I think we associate just with just with sin. Okay, but in the context, just to remind the listeners, um, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, Paul is not talking solely about like oh you know I'm in pain or something. Right. He's talking about what I, what I want is more, you know, and this is amazing because when you're thinking about the resurrection body, I mean, let's just be honest, a lot of people don't. They think that their body needs to just like go away, you know, and, and then they, you know, it's a shell and I just want to get rid of it. You know, like a snake gets rid of its skin. I think that's how a lot of people think about the resurrection. Not so. What's happening is that what you what you had in this life that was good is then gloriously changed into something that is you, but better than one can ever imagine. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the last battle, in the Chronicles of Narnia, by saying that those who were, you know, English uh, went to an England even. You know, farther up and farther in and something even more gloriously England than England had ever been. And it's the same way here. What I'm groaning for is I don't, I don't want to get rid of a body. God gave me a body bodies. That's good. That's great, right? Jesus has a body. He shows the wounds in his body to prove it's him after the resurrection. But what I want, what I'm groaning for is for his work to be complete in my body that no longer would there be decay, but there would only be life. No longer would there be sin, but there would only be righteousness, right? That's, that's what I'm groaning for. I want, I'm groaning for more. This, it's interesting that in Romans, Romans eight, Paul talks about groaning. There, the whole creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Here, the sons of God themselves are groaning because they're like, I want, I want more than this. You know, I, I want even better than this and, and in Christ we'll have it. And so we're groaning because we're, you know, pressing ahead. Like Paul talks about the resurrection. We uh, referenced earlier in the hour in Philippians, he's pressing ahead toward the prize. So yeah, you're groaning because you don't, you don't quite have what you want, but it's not, it's not this like exhausted, like, oh, my knees hurt. I just got to sit down. It's Mm -hmm. groaning. Like I want, I want more, Mm -hmm. I want more of this. I want more life. Yeah, so I mean
0: so this does serve as a good text for Christians who are who are near death, but it would also serve as a good text for Christians who are enjoying all the good things of this life that well, while we are eating, drinking and being merry, even then we're still groaning, wanting more, wanting again not as, right. as you were saying in the way Paul says, not to be unclothed but to be further clothed. So even at those most joyous moments that we have in this life, even then we are groaning in this way, looking forward to that life that's to come right. that is even better. That's right. That's right. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's perhaps the the hardest thing to to do. I think, or and I I don't intend to make it a burden in that sense, but that is perhaps the the moment when we we don't groan. Like, you know, and I've I've thought about this before. Yeah. With, in in cases like in that in that time when when my wife's been pregnant and we're waiting for the birth of the child. Do I want Jesus to come before the child is born? Because I know that's going to be really great. I don't want to miss that joy. Yeah, you know, I mean, or those whatever those moments are that we look forward most to in this life? Like, well, I'd kind of like Jesus to wait till after that, and maybe we're not groaning the way Paul wants us to groan. Yeah, like, and, I, that's right. I'm sorry. Well, and I just and not in the sense of burdening people with that, or or but but to make us. Maybe think about what this sort of groaning looks like is is my point in thinking about that myself and bringing it up
1: yeah i I mean, I think we often groan um you know uh christians non-christians alike groan because time is not working the way we want it to, right things are things are sagging on us, we don't want to sag um we don't have enough hours in the day, whatever right it's 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 lack of control of time the long-term process of aging and the shorter-term process of i didn't get everything done that i today that i wanted to get done or or whatever it is that we're we're trying to control paul isn't talking about time that way yeah hmm. he is talking about a longing that's going to be verbally expressed i mean i i can imagine groaning in a paul way in the words of psalms it, it's it's not um Like, you know, just involuntary, involuntary noises people make when their (laughs) knees hurt, right? Um, Because Paul's not talking about regretting that time is passing. It's passing too quickly. it's, It's, not. I don't have enough of it. He's talking about longing for Jesus to deliver on his promises. And because that time when what is mortal is swallowed up by life is completely under Christ's control, I'm actually looking forward to it. Yeah. And the, play, the I, I really only see Christians get to a point that explicit usually in their lives, that explicit when they are about to die. And that could very well just be a result of the total huge distraction that most things in life are to most of us almost all the time so that we have to be practically on death's door before we realize what it is that we're pressing toward and and how weighty that reality is and how light all of the other things and all of the other time really really prove to be usually people only get to the point where paul is right here when they are just about to join him in the church triumphant mm. Yeah. All right. So with with those things in mind, let's keep walking
0: through the text. In verse five, he says that he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. What does yeah. that mean? That the spirit is a guarantee.
1: Yeah, um I I wish that they had translated the end of verse five differently because it's it's better than a guarantee, right? In <laughs> In American English, you can get a guarantee from all kinds of people. And if somebody (laughs) says, I guarantee you, that's the exact moment where I'm like, oh, okay, you're lying. (laughs) (laughs) And then maybe I just should be less suspicious of people. Um, very technically it's just down payment. It's down payment. So this is God giving you his spirit. So. The reality of the Spirit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, the fact that you believe, um, the fact that you're baptized, Titus 3 talks about the gift of the Spirit and the Spirit's role in baptism and in being regenerated and renewed by, by that Spirit. All of those things of the Spirit present in your life, the reality of the Word of God, the fact that you ever hear it, that you ever get to read it, that you ever hear it preached, or that perhaps you preach it, all of that is God's down payment. And what that means is he's saying, I'm good, for I'm good for it, right? I'm going to give you the rest because the, the, the paragraph as well as really the whole chapter is about the fact that God is actually good for it, mm-hmm. right? You, he's not going to flake out on you at the end and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have the rest of the money, you know? Um, he's not going to default on, his, on what he has promised to do. So the gift of the spirit here is God's down payment. His in Greek that he is going to deliver. And that if you have his spirit now and you're baptized now, he's going to deliver on that resurrection because it's all under his control. So you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. If he's not actually going to come through for you, he gives you the spirit as a down payment that he's in earnest. He's going to do this. He's, he's coming back with the rest. And and here the rest is not like money he owes you, it's more life, right? Yeah. It's resurrection. And the spirit is his down payment that he's he's gonna do it. Hmm. So
0: if if the afflictions, the sufferings make me wonder what is God gonna deliver, then it is the, the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes in, in word and in sacrament. That's where I I find the assurance that even yeah. in the midst of my affliction, God is going to deliver what he's promised.
1: Yeah, and there is a lot to unravel in this. I mean, that this verse of all the verses out of the 10 is really the one that if you just sort of ran around with some of the same terms or you looked around in the rest of the New Testament or the old, look at how the spirit dwells in the temple. Hmm. And you went with this and you said, oh, down payment, okay, you know, what else is he going to deliver on? You would you find here, I think, the richest vein to work out of the ten verses, because what you're looking at is the reality that the Holy Spirit is not only there sort of like by force and I think I think because a lot of people think about the Holy Spirit as some kind of force or it's very common for people to identify the presence of God's Holy Spirit with their emotional state, so when they're up that's the holy spirit and when they're down that's not the holy spirit you know because of that they fail to appreciate not only what the spirit is the third person of the holy trinity but also why he is given to god's people right now because he is the one seeing you through moving you through affliction and also giving you a context for this affliction is not forever. This affliction does not define you. This difficulty, these thorns in the flesh, whatever they might be from later in 2 Corinthians, those are not exactly who you are because who you are is defined by the fact that you have been given the spirit as a down payment and God is going to raise you to eternal life. That's definitive. That's real. That's lasting. That's eternal. That's not temporary. That's, you know, that's, that's going to happen and nothing's going to replace it. So you can take verse five and run all over the place with it because you can use it to begin to understand what is the Christian life and how is it actually the beginning of the life everlasting.
0: Hmm. Can, can you run with that thread just a little bit here before we move on? I'm, I'm yeah. curious where, where else you would, would take us. Just yeah. give us a, a couple of places. Okay.
1: Yeah, so one place that you might think about is to consider why the Spirit is given um, in the Book of Acts, because you could you could say, well, um, because the Spirit is you know is at times absent from the temple, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. In the Old Testament, why is He here now? Because the glorious dwelling of God with His people is in New Testament times through the gift of faith already begun. So, you have to understand the gift of the Spirit as the beginning of something eternal, in the way that, as I referenced a little bit earlier in the hour, John's gospel particularly pays attention to that, yes, you are waiting for the resurrection, but the, the, the life of the world to come is already begun by faith in God's people. Mm-hmm. And that the, the presence of the Spirit in the midst of God's people is a sign of, of, of a final dwelling. He has come among those from whom he will never more depart, so that the last times have already begun, right? He's already where he's going to be in the midst of his people. Another place I would go would be to look at the concept of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, because when you're in one thing of Paul's, it's always relatively easy and and nice to go to another thing of Paul's, and you're going to find in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, which we often Kind of translate and then we put them up as you know nice colorful posters for the little guys in sunday school to look at so the little guys are supposed to consider relatively abstract concepts like self-control you know these are these are people who have to learn not to steal juice from each other you know <laughs> so i mean self-control is the worst thing to talk to little guys about but sometimes that list of the fruit of the spirit can become very like a set of sort of abstract principles and you're you're You try to put them into practice and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But that if the Spirit is given as a down payment, then you also understand that the fruit of the Spirit as part of that, and it comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is an expression of the life of the world to come. And that now what you are beginning to see where somebody is patient or somebody is gentle or somebody is exhibiting self-control or whatever, This is not just, you know, some sort of practice of virtue, like, you know, you eat a healthier breakfast than I do. This is actually the presence of God's eternal plan for mankind actually beginning now among his people by virtue of the gift of the spirit that he has brought through that gospel preaching. And that's pretty amazing because now you begin to see people's everyday lives as expressions of God's eternal will wow, I cannot believe he actually gave this person faith and and here's what's going on with him and this is all through God's gift rather than just, you know, well, he likes to eat healthy, you know, or something. Um, the things that are happening in the lives of God's people are a result of divine action through the Holy Spirit. They're not just, um, you know, some people are kind of more polite than others or do better with crowds or something, uh, merely human differences these are amazing things that only God's spirit could work.
0: Mm. As Paul moves forward, then he says, so we are always of good courage. And he repeats that in verse eight. Why, why good courage? What does that look like? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Good courage because, you know, because when you're cast down and courage, courage leaves the party quickly. You know, you know, some people, they like to come late and then they want to leave early, whatever. Right. Is that is that courage likes to go away quickly. It's kind of, it's one of our more fragile virtues that when we are discouraged, we lose the ability to put ourselves forward into things that if we had not become discouraged and particularly in second Corinthians, that discouragement is through the afflictions that Paul is undergoing and, and that he's talking about in his life and other people's lives is that we, when we begin to think about what God is actually doing in the resurrection and has already begun by faith, has already begun by the gift of the Holy Spirit, now that makes me think differently about what lies in front of me to do, and I can approach it with courage. If I'm focusing on the fact that things are not going the way that I want, or that I'm perplexed, or that I'm cast down, or that I fear I am near death, or any of the other things that Paul's already described in the letter then it's easy to be discouraged. But good courage proceeds out of a lively use of the gospel. And that when I know the gospel and I know the extent and the depth and the purpose of God's gifts, then I can begin to actually have the kind of courage that would be that would be suitable. And courage goes with boldness for Paul, particularly boldness of speech, it's one word in Greek. And it's the way that a citizen of a city talks instead of somebody who is afraid he's going to get kicked out because he's not a citizen. So if he says the wrong thing, they're going to try to send him home. A a citizen speaks with boldness and a citizen can also be courageous because, you know, he knows he's not going to lose everything right now. If I know that death is already behind me, I'm of good courage right? I know that Christ will have the victory of good courage. So my present-day action is affected by God's past, present, and future gifts. And when I know what those are, then I'm of good courage.
0: Hmm. Now, now, how does that relate to the matter of our, our life being
1: by faith and not by sight? This is uh, particularly appropriate, and I, I don't know exactly when this will air, but we're in some relationship to Christmas right now, and, and probably it won't air if it does too long after Christmas. And if it does, you can remember Christmas. Surely, is that at Christmas time the church prays, in connection with Holy Communion, th- that we would learn to love those things that are not seen a phrase that's actually from just the previous chapter, two paragraphs ago. And the love of things that are not seen is simply the love of what we are waiting to see. So when he says, well, we're walking by faith, we're not walking by sight. If we are walking by sight, you don't have to have, you don't have to say we are of good courage if you're walking by sight and you see all God's angels protecting you and you see Christ leading you. If, If you could see all that, then, yeah, there would be like no reason for Second Corinthians because you'd never be like, I am very perplexed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or I am very cast down. But because I can't see all of the heavenly realities that are going on around me all the time as a child of God, um, as a minister of the gospel, whatever else it is that I am, because I can't see that, I have to walk by faith because I, I, because I just can't walk by sight. I'm waiting for my, for my faith to be turned into sight, right? That's, that's how in, you know, first Corinthians, faith's going to go away. Hope's going to go away because God will deliver. So then you won't have to trust. You'll see, and you won't have to hope because it'll be here, but then you'll still love, Hmm. but right now we've, we need faith and we need hope and we have to walk by them because I can't see all the glories that are around me right now. I mean, I, you know, part of that groaning, certainly in Romans 8, part of that groaning is I'm groaning because I want to see all this, you know, I want, I want to see the victory. I want to see all. right now. I don't. So I have to be encouraged through God's word right now so that I can walk by faith because sight is right now is misleading. I look around the world, doesn't look like the Bible says. Mm. Now, as Paul brings this
0: text for today to a close, he yeah. says, whether we are at home or away, so whether we are in this earthly body or when we reach the resurrection body, we make it our aim to please him because we'll all appear before Christ's judgment seat. We got about three and a half minutes here, Pastor Koons, okay. to close this out.
1: Yeah, this is something where, you know, I think sometimes Christians have been a little bit confused about this, is that uh like the, the, the good and faithful servants in, say, the parable of the talents, the Christian has nothing to fear any more than the sheep, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, have anything to fear from meeting the master and rendering an account to him. Rendering an account to him is all over the New Testament. Um, it's at the end of the Athanasian Creed, or I'm sorry, it's in, kind of in the middle of the Athanasian Creed from towards the end of John chapter 5, those who have done good in the body to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You don't have anything to fear from meeting Christ. You long for his appearing, in fact, because your life is lived like the life of the sheep or like the life of the man who has five talents or the man who has two in view of who the master truly is. So your life will be defined by work work is not bad work that is pleasing to him so you whatever it is that he's given you to do he's given you whatever people he's given you to take care of whatever things he, he has given you to do with the talents that you have in the sense that we use that word not as money but stuff i know how to do stuff i like doing stuff i'm good at doing whatever he, it is that that you have been given you want to use all of that for him and for his purposes in faithfulness to him in a way that is pleasing to him. You don't want to run your marriage or go to work or whatever it is that you're doing in a way that displeases him okay? because you're accountable to him. Ultimately, you're, you're accountable to him. You don't need to look forward to that with terror or fright. He's gracious. He's good. He's given you the talents that you need where and when you need them. He is rich and abundant that way and you will be able to say to him you know I took your five talents and I I put them to work right I took the two things that you gave me and I put those to work and and that's great and the, and and Paul looks forward to that Paul likes that right he speaks of himself in his own work also in 1 Corinthians as when I do work that's worthwhile I you know and and Timothy needs to study this way so that he can be a workman who need not be ashamed. And that's true for everybody, right? Live in a way pleasing to God, trying to understand what his will is for your life, and your family, in your church, wherever, so that you have no need to be ashamed before him, but you can say to him, you gave me five talents, here's what I did with him. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. that You have that to look forward to, right? That's something you're pressing toward that is a part of the life of the world to come.
0: The Rev. Dr. Adam Kuntz is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10. to Pastor Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you, it was my pleasure.
0: We walk by faith, not by sight— Throughout this life we groan, looking forward to the life of the world to come. God has given us the Spirit as a down payment. He is good for it. He will bring the resurrection. And so until then, we live a life according to His Word, looking forward to that day when He returns to judge the living and the dead and to take us to our eternal home. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians 5, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.